All right, well, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get things rolling today. This is going to be our last week together in the Epistle of Jude. So once again, we're just going to do a quick review of everything that we've covered up to this point. So uh, again, the approach to uh, interpreting the scriptures that I've utilized as we've worked through this study um, comes from Scott Duvall and Danny Hayes and their book, Grasping God's Word. It's a five-step journey through the scriptures, right? So it begins with that first step, grasping the text in their town, understanding what was the authorial intent of this. What did it mean to the original audience? Okay, and then second, understanding what are the differences between the original audience and ourselves. There are some aspects of Scripture that are very specific to the original audience's context. So, for instance, if we're reading in the Old Testament, we might be going through the book of Leviticus and reading about some of the laws that God gave to the people of Israel when they inherited the land, right? Those things, right, are subject to that particular context, right? So that's why we don't sacrifice bulls on an altar today, for instance. So once we understand what are the differences between the original audience and ourselves, we're then able to determine what is the universal principle of the text of Scripture that transcends culture. It applied to them, and now it can also apply to us today. And then fourth, we want to consult the map. We want to look at the rest of Scripture and make sure that the rest of Scripture supports the principle that we've pulled out of this particular text. So it's certainly always possible to look at one text of Scripture and come up with kind of an off-the-wall interpretation, right, that may make sense in that one small piece of Scripture, but when you hold it against the rest of the testimony of Scripture, we realize that's probably not what that text actually means, right? And we're also going to be referencing historical theology. So how have the church fathers interpreted this text, right? How has our tradition interpreted this text? If you're the very first person in all of history to ever come up with this principle and this meaning of this text, it's probably time to go back to step one and try again, okay? And then step five, once we understand what is that universal principle that transcends all culture and context and time, we want to know how do we apply it specifically to ourselves, to our contemporary world today. So just a quick review of what we have covered so far in our 12 weeks together. Um, The first question that we asked is, who is the author? If we're going to understand how to read the text in their town, we need to know who wrote it. And we discovered that the author is Jude, the brother of James, the bishop of Jerusalem, and also the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we understand from the Gospels that Jude was not a believer, right, um, during the earthly ministry of Jesus. But at some point in time, after the resurrection and before Pentecost, Jude seems to have come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, right, because we have an account from Luke in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus' brothers and his mother were with the disciples in that room in Jerusalem together. So uh, Jude was serving as an itinerant missionary preacher among the churches, right, that had been planted by the apostles in Galilee, right, their own hometown. And so that leads us to the question of who was Jude's intended audience, Well, Jude was serving as an itinerant preacher among the churches in Galilee, and we've determined that he is also writing this letter to those first-generation Jewish Christian converts living in Galilee, 
right, among the churches that had been planted by the apostles themselves. So third, we wanted to understand what is the genre, because scripture contains lots of different genres that have to be read, right, differently. So for instance, we're not going to read the Gospels in the same way that we read the Song of Solomon, right? We're not going to read the Prophets in the same way that we read the Pentateuch. These are different genres of scripture. And so the genre of Jude is um, pretty unique. It's a Jewish apocalyptic style that was very popular in Judea and in Palestine sometime from the very uh, beginning of the first century until the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, So it's a very similar style to, say, um, the Revelation of John that we read at the very end of our Bible Right. And so Jude is utilizing Greek speech rhetoric techniques. Right? We know that he was well-educated. He's also utilizing um, Jewish midrash and pesher, rabbinical hermeneutics, right, in his work as well. So uh, the next thing we wanted to understand was when was Jude written? And we determined that Jude was possibly one of the very first books of the New Testament to be written and circulated among the churches. So we've got a date approximately 48 to 58 AD, which puts it before even the Gospels would have been written and circulated among the churches. Um, Certainly before any of the Pauline epistles were written and circulated among the churches. And that helps to explain why Jude doesn't seem to be quoting from any of the rest of the New Testament. He was written before, right, any of the rest of the New Testament. So Jude's purpose for writing is stated um, himself in the first few verses of the book, right? He's had a long-standing intention to communicate with his audience, but that need has been made more urgent by this crisis that's arisen in the church. He says that certain people have crept in unnoticed, right, and that they're perverting the gospel of grace. So he's wanting to urge his audience to contend for the faith, right, the faith that was once for all handed down directly from the apostles to his audience. So Jude has some things to tell us about his opponents. And in fact, the majority of the letter, he is telling us about them and why they're bad and why his audience needs to be careful around these people. First, he tells us that they were long ago designated for condemnation. Jude seems to believe that his opponents were subjects of some sort of prophetic condemnation, um, which we've identified as coming from um, an apocryphal book known as First Enoch. Second, he says that his opponents are ungodly people, right? Asebes is the word in Greek. It shows up all over the place in the Old Testament if we're looking at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It also shows up a lot in the book of First Enoch. And this word ungodly, asebes, is always given to us in contrast against the righteous, right? There's the righteous who belong to the Lord, and there are the ungodly, right, who do whatever they want to do. And Jude is using this word to emphasize his opponent's antinomianism. That is to say that they want to eschew the law of Moses. They want to do away with the moral ethics of the Old Testament entirely. Okay, so 30 tells us that they're perverting grace into sensuality, which most certainly means that they're using grace as a license to engage in illicit sexual practices. And fourth, 
he says that they actually go so far as to deny our Lord Jesus Christ, right? What does Jesus say about the law? Did he come to put an end to the law? No, he tells us in the Gospels, I have come to fulfill the law. And they deny that. Rather than submitting to Jesus' authority, they have become a law unto themselves. So then Jude moves into some historical examples of how God has historically responded to such things. Right? And he provides us with three examples. The first example he gives to us are the people, the Hebrew people after the Exodus. And we've got an account of this in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Right? So after God had delivered them from Egypt through those ten plagues, he'd opened up the Red Sea for them. He'd led them. Right in a, in a pillar of fire. And yet still, these people do not believe in the power of God, nor his commands. Right? And their behavior, we're told, provoked God's wrath and punishment. Second, he provides us with the illustration of the fallen angels. And this is a reference back to Genesis chapter 6. It's pretty vague in that text. But again, First Enoch, which Jude seems to be relying on heavily, expands upon the narrative of Genesis 6. Right? And in this story, we have angels who abandon the heavenly place that God had uh, appointed for them. They abandon the roles and responsibility that God had given to them. Instead, they came to earth and they took human women as wives and had children with them. Right? And so their rebellion against God by abandoning his creational purpose for themselves and also teaching and encouraging humans to do the same, to rebel against God, provoked God's wrath and punishment. And the third illustration he provides to us is that of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sexual immorality and pursuit of unnatural desire provoked, once again, God's wrath and punishment. Now, we'll notice that Jude tends to give us examples in triads, right? There's three examples that he gives to us. And the third example that he provides in each of these triads always are an example of some sort of big apocalyptic destruction, right? So we have here the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And how did God, right, um, express his wrath and punishment against them? He utterly consumed those cities in fire. So Jude brings several indictments against his opponents. First, he says that they're dreamers, and it seems to be intended by Jude in a pejorative way. His opponents are citing some sort of special revelation through their own dreams, and they're using this as a source of final authority for things of doctrine and ethics, things that contradict the scriptures and the apostolic faith. Second, he says that they defile the flesh. And this phrase is another one that appears repeatedly in First Enoch. It's used to describe the sinful rebellion of the angels against God through abominable sexual acts. And Jude is most certainly using it here to further address his opponent's sexual sin. In this, they are like both the fallen angels and the men of Sodom. And Jude expects that God is going to handle them the same way that he did those examples. Third, he says that they reject authority. So Jude's opponents are like both the post-Exodus Israelites and the fallen angels, and that they fail to acknowledge their role in the order of God's creation. Rather than submitting to their rightful position in obedience to God, they subvert his authority and the authoritative teachings of Jesus in order to pursue their own plans instead. <coughs> Fourth, 
He says that they blaspheme the glorious ones. So Jude's opponents claim to receive divine revelations that explicitly contradict the actual divine revelation of the law and the gospel found in the scriptures and in the apostolic faith that's been delivered to Jude's audience. Now Jude's opponents are claiming divine authority to challenge the apostles, the prophets, Moses, and even Jesus himself. Jude makes clear that they're rejecting the law of God without even understanding what it is or what it means. This is much like our contemporaries who reject the moral laws of the scriptures by citing other scriptures out of context or interpreted in a way that would have been completely foreign to the authorial intent of those laws. Lastly, right, Jude says that they're condemned by their own carnality. Their lack of self-control in terms of their greed, their power tactics over others, their sexual licentiousness, all of these things prove to everyone around that they're not actually from God. Jude then offers three more historical biblical figures to whom he likens his opponents. The first of which, he says, they walk in the way of Cain. Now, Cain was a rebel who didn't believe in God's judgment, didn't believe that God's judgment would actually come against him. He challenged God's authority in order to live according to his own greed and lust. And he enticed others to join him in that sin. Second, he says that they rush into Balaam's error. Now, we've got this story in Numbers 22 through 24, and then uh, again, it's concluded in chapter 31. Balaam was a prophet for money. And he enticed others to join him in his sin for his own financial gain. And then third, uh, again, a triad that ends with an apocalyptic story. He says that they perish in Korah's rebellion. The story is provided to us in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a priest whose pride led him to reject godly authority. Right? So the Israelites had sent spies into the land. The spies came back with... A mixed report. The land was good, but it was inhabited by giants, and God must be sending us there to destroy us, this total lack of faith. And so God punishes the people. He says, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation dies. The next generation will go into the land to inherit it. And Korah rejects that. He rejects that they're being punished, right? And he encourages the people of Israel to rise up against Moses and Aaron enticing others to join his rebellion, bringing disaster upon the whole congregation. Now, with that final reference to Korah's rebellion, it's also Jude's intent to demonstrate to his audience a model as established by Moses and Aaron for dealing with those who reject godly authority and rebel against God's law. Okay, so first, Moses and Aaron taught everything that God had commanded, right? God had provided them with the law, and they taught the law to the people. Right? The second step is that they warned those who persisted in error. Right? They gave an admonition, an appeal to repent, right? to come back under submission to the authority of God. And third, for those who did not persist, Moses and Aaron encouraged the congregation to separate from those people. Right? He said, if you're with Korah, go, go over, put your tents by, by Korah's tent. If you're not with Korah, come away, right? Because what happened, right? In that story, God opens up the earth and everybody who was part of Korah's camp was swallowed up 
the earth. So separate from those who persist. And then fourth, still intercede on their behalf. Pray for them. Pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, would grant to them repentance. But ultimately, leave the work of final judgment to God. Right? It's our job to teach what God has commanded. It's our job to provide admonition when people stray. Right? But it's God's job, ultimately, to judge. Now, in verse 12, Jude returns to his list of indictments against his opponents. He says that these people are blemishes upon your love feasts, right? which, as we learned a few weeks ago, was what they called their celebration of the Eucharist, what we celebrated together this morning. They're eating without fear, but they should be afraid of the judgment of God. And this indictment that they eat without fear implicitly also indicts Jude's audience. How is it that they've allowed these people to continue to eat the Eucharist among them, much less without any sense of fear of the wrath of God? It's their responsibility as it's the responsibility of any disciple of Jesus to let their brothers and sisters know when they are in sin. This is why Jude is so emphatic at the introduction to this letter and urging his audience to contend rather than passively sitting by and watching these people eating and drinking condemnation upon themselves, blemishing the gathering of the church. Now, that Jude calls his opponents shepherds Maybe another case of him weaponizing their terminology against them. They clearly present themselves as leaders in the church, but their behavior betrays them. God calls people to servant leadership in his church. And the fact that they're serving themselves rather than the sheep once again demonstrates that they are not of God. Jude employs four metaphors then to describe his opponents. First, he calls them waterless clouds. Um, As an agrarian society, the Galileans would have immediately understood this without any further explanation. If rain doesn't fall, then crops fail. This can spell disaster for farmers. So imagine watching as heavy clouds roll over your fields, parched, (laughs) without dropping a single drop of refreshing, sustaining water that they need to support your livelihood. Those clouds are supposed to bring the rain, and yet they refuse to fulfill their purpose. In the same way, his second metaphor, fruitless fruit trees don't bring any value to the land. If they're not productive, if they're diseased or they're dying, any farmer who knows his business is going to pull them out of that valuable real estate and instead replace them with something that will produce. Now, Jude's opponents have come into the church promising divine revelation but bringing no such thing. Further, their sexual appetites are outside the bounds of God's creational order. They've refused to be and to do what they were created to be and to do. So while those first two metaphors speak of Jude's opponent's failure to deliver what they promise, his third metaphor addresses what they do bring. So just as waves of the sea bring flotsam and jetsam to shore, Jude's opponents are bringing a lot of junk into the church especially their shameful behavior. As already mentioned repeatedly, their shameful greed and lust are evident in everything that they do. Lastly, Jude's metaphor of wandering stars addresses how his opponents have deviated from the path of righteousness. It's observable how all of Jude's lists thus far have concluded with examples of judgment. 
There's three examples of God's wrath against sinners, he concluded, with Sodom and Gomorrah. Entire cities utterly consumed in fire from heaven. There's three examples of peoples to whom he likened his opponents. He concluded with those who perished in Korah's rebellion. Entire families swallowed up in the earth. Now he concludes his metaphors with wandering stars condemned to utter darkness. While the previous three metaphors could have references in canonical scripture, there's no obvious passage to which this one might be alluding. And again, it seems that Jude is leaning upon First Enoch. In this case, chapters 18 and 21, which describes the eschatological end times punishment of stars that fail to follow the heavenly course set for them by the creator. Because his opponents have similarly departed from the way, Jude expects that they will inherit a very similar fate. So then in verse 14, Jude circles back to his initial proposition back in verse 4, that his opponents were condemned long ago. Now, if somehow all of his arguments up to this point have not sufficed to convince his audience of the danger of his opponents, this would serve as his final trump card. He quotes from Enoch, who he believes prophesied against those who have crept in unnoticed. Jude introduces Enoch as the seventh from Adam. Now, that's an extremely important uh, character for Jude and for his audience. Seven is a number of completion and perfection in Jewish numerology. And Enoch was listed as the seventh generation descended from Adam. Now, on account of this, Jewish mystics revered Enoch. And Jewish tradition held that he remained faithful in an era of profound ungodliness, which is why he serves as such a useful um, reference, uh, a function in Jude's argument. Scripture teaches that Enoch didn't die, but because of his exceeding faithfulness to God, instead he was simply taken to be with God, much like Elijah. Jude quotes from a prophetic utterance in 1 Enoch, which is a strong condemnation against the ungodly. Again, that same word, asebes, appears in that prophecy. Now, this is the first and only example of a direct quotation in all of Jude. So it's important that Jude is citing what he considers to be prophecy. Perhaps not all of 1st Enoch in its entirety is considered by Jude to be divine revelation, but at least this specific prophecy. Now, while his opponents are quick to blasphemously pronounce judgment on their own authority, Jude follows the example that he references a little bit earlier of the archangel Michael in his disputation against the devil. Instead, he allows a higher authority to pronounce judgment. In this case, he's referencing the prophecy of Enoch. Now, the effect here is that Jude is deferring to God's own judgment against his opponents. Now, having read their conviction and sentence, Jude summarizes the offenses of his opponents one final time. First, he says that they're grumblers and malcontents. Just like the unfaithful after the exodus, they've seen the powerful works of God, and yet still they deny his power and commands. Just like the fallen angels, they've rejected their role in creation and are teaching and encouraging others to do the same. Just like Cain and Korah, they do not accept the judgment of God and are actively challenging his authority. Second, they follow their lusts. 
Just like the fallen angels and the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they've rebelled against God and committed abominable sexual sin. Just like Cain, they do whatever pleases themselves without concern for the statutes of God or for the harm that this may bring to their neighbor. Third, he says that they're loudmouths. Literally translated, Jude writes that their mouths speak with great swelling. Just like Cain, they boast of their wickedness. And just like Korah's rebels, they speak against the Lord's anointed without fear. Fourth, they flatter people for profit. Just like Balaam, they're willing to say whatever people want them to say, even if it goes against the will and the commandment of God. And they do this for financial gain. So having laid out his case that his opponents are the ungodly against whom Enoch prophesied, Jude now appeals to the witness of the apostles who personally planted these churches in Galilee, characters that were personally close and familiar with his audience. At some point, the apostles personally warned Jude's audience that all of this would happen. The apostles prophesied that scoffers will arise in the last days. As noted in Strong, uh, Strong's Concordance, empiketes, the Greek word translated as scoffers, frequently entails connotations of false teaching or false prophecy. In the Gospels, it's very common to see Jesus warning his disciples that such people would appear after his passion and resurrection. And obedient to the Great Commission, where Jesus instructs his disciples to baptize people, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded, it follows that the apostles shared Jesus' warnings with everyone they ministered to. Now, the apostles, like Jesus, indicated that it will be easy to identify these scoffers because they will follow their own ungodly, again, here we are, asebea, passions. Jesus is recorded in the Gospels to have said that you'll know them by their fruit, a theme cleverly inserted in his previous metaphors. Jude explicitly makes this point about his opponents back in verse 10 when he writes that these people blaspheme whatever they cannot perceive, but are corrupted by whatever they instinctually, like illogical beasts, know. Jude's approach to this issue is far from winsome. The strong way that he speaks about his opponents can be quite shocking to modern ears. Were I to write something like this today, I would most certainly be admonished for my tone and accused of being divisive. And yet Jude is very clear in his argument here. These people, these people are the ones who are causing division within the church. The burden of schism is not upon those who, after admonishing and pleading, ultimately separate from such ungodly people. And that's regardless of who wins the property, the historic structures, and the titles. Lastly, the apostles warn that these scoffers will be spiritual, but devoid of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is devastating. Being spiritual but not having the Holy Spirit is something akin to being a Christian if Christ were not raised from the dead. If that were the case, then as St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, our faith would be in vain, and we would be most worthy of all people to be pitied. But of course, Christ is risen indeed, and our faith is not in vain. 
But if we wrap ourselves in all the outward trappings of church and religion, worship in the most beautiful ancient cathedrals, we adorn our clergy in the most luxurious vestments, and fill our services with the most glorious music and liturgy, but preach any gospel but that which has been revealed in the word of God, once for all handed down, and it is all in vain. And that leads to our text this morning. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Now here at verse 20, we see a shift. Jude no longer is speaking about his opponents. Now he's beginning to make his direct appeal to his audience. Humes de agapetoi. But you, beloved. Now, having realized that their fellow churchmen, possibly friends or even family, were out of accord with the gospel, and hearing Jude's harsh words towards them, the recipients of this letter must have been overcome with emotion. Whenever we see a loved one or a fellow churchman abandon the faith, we're bound to be disturbed. But our concern for that individual quickly gives way to self-doubt. If our friends or our loved ones could stray from the faith, what's keeping us from doing the same? We begin to wonder how we'll ever discern the true gospel from counterfeit gospels. Now, Jude pastorally anticipates this progression, and he provides a basic outline made up of four clauses to differentiate those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ from those other ungodly scoffers. Now, the first two clauses are headed by the participles, epoik dumuntes and pros euhomenoi which means building and praying, respectively. Now, the third clause contains the imperative verb terasate, which means to keep or to guard. And the fourth clause, with the participle pros de hominoi, awaiting or receiving. So let's look at these clauses individually, starting with those three participles. So 
The first clause begins with the present active participle, epoik dumuntes, from the, verd, the, the verb epoik domeo, which means to build. Now, this is a plural participle, followed by the accusative second masculine plural, you twos, which is yourselves or each other. Okay, so Jude is addressing the way that the elect build up one another in the firm foundation of the holy faith which they share in common. Now, this statement may call to mind the parable of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew about the wise man who built his house upon the rock. When the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, it didn't fall because it had been founded upon the rock. It's also important to recognize the communal nature of this action. So Jude isn't calling upon each individual believer in the church to pull themselves up by their bootstraps to contend against this false gospel that's crept into the church. Both the participle and the pronoun are plural. So it's for each member to look out for each other, ensuring that everyone is built upon the firm foundation of the faith that has been once for all delivered. This is the plain contrast to Jude's opponents, who are shepherds, only interested in feeding themselves. This faith is more than mere intellectual assent to a set of doctrinal truths, but is ultimately manifested in obedience to God. As Jude's brother, James, the bishop of Jerusalem, makes clear in his letter, faith without works is dead. Rather than casting off the moral law, as Jude's opponents have done, those who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the commandments of God to be a lamp unto their feet, more to be desired than gold, like sweetest honey to the lips. As the apostle Paul explains to his uh, uh, audience in his epistle to the Ephesians, you've been saved by grace through faith, And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Jude is reminding us of our mutual responsibility to be building each other up upon the foundation of the gospel, wherein we are saved by grace through faith alone but recognizing that the grace of God empowers and equips us to live lives of holiness according to the word, which in turn brings glory to God. Now the second clause continues with this present middle participle, pros euhomenoi, from the verb pros euhomai, which means to pray. Now, it's again a plural participle indicating that Jude's expectation is that the elect will be in community together. This calls to mind the very similar admonition from the epistle of the Hebrews in the 10th chapter of that book. After reminding the church that the atoning work of Christ upon the cross has been accomplished once for all, and the promise of the Holy Spirit to put God's laws on our hearts and our minds the author of the epistle continues. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart 
in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, we have a contrast with Jews' opponents. While they're spiritual insofar as they're filled with the spirit of the age, but utterly devoid of the Holy Spirit, Jude exhorts his audience to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, some have argued that Jude is writing about praying in tongues here, um, but it's impossible to make such an argument just out of this text. Right? You have to be reading a whole lot into what Jude's saying to come up uh, with that conclusion. Taken in fuller context of Jude's letter, a very compelling argument can be made that Jude is talking about prayers under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and thus praying in accordance with God's will for his people. Jude's opponents are worshiping according to their dreams and to their lusts, but we're to worship according to the word of God. As we discussed last week, Anglicans believe in the maxim lex orandi lex credendi, that is, the law of prayer becomes the law of faith. How we pray and how we worship shapes what we believe. That's why changes to the Book of Common Prayer inevitably result in changes in doctrine. Jesus, um, sorry, that, that second clause... Let's see here. Where am I? There we go. So skipping to uh, over that third clause momentarily, the only clause with a proper imperative verb, right, in the third clause, I want to skip over that and go to the fourth clause, which again <coughs> utilizes a present middle voice participle, in this case, pros de hominoi. Now, this comes from the verb pros de homai to receive, once again, it's a plural participle, emphasizing the communal nature of all these things. Now, while this is commonly translated as awaiting, I think it's important to see the semantic range of this word, which includes receiving or granting access to oneself. Now, there's something vulnerable about this. In a world where I can place an order online with Amazon.com and receive my package next day, we've lost something about the concept of waiting. I remember when I was a little boy, my mom took me to a department store and allowed me to pick out a bicycle for myself. And once I'd chosen the perfect one, we wheeled it back to the back of the store and submitted it to their layaway department. I spent the next three months helping my mom with various jobs, earning money to contribute towards that bicycle, which once paid in its entirety would be mine to take home. Now the act of waiting here necessarily entails hope. If I didn't have the hope of receiving that bicycle and anticipating the joy of the wind in my face as I rode it down steep hills on the country roads around my house, then I'd have lacked the motivation and the fortitude to keep laboring. But that's a vulnerable act, right? To hope for the joy that would be mine, but 
isn't mine yet. And that's exactly what Jude is after in this clause, right? Receiving elos, the mercy, the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Unlike Jude's opponents who indulge in every lustful passion in the here and now, whatever strikes their fancy, those who belong to Christ practice self-discipline and mortification of the flesh because they know that the things God desires for them and has in store for them far exceed the fleeting pleasures of sin and self-indulgence. All right, so again, this third clause, it's the only one with an imperative verb. So teresate means to keep, to guard, or to persevere. Jude's commanding his audience then and now to guard themselves in the love of God. Theu, the Greek word for God, appears in the genitive case, which can at times cause challenges for translation. In this verse, we're left to decide whether the love of God is being referenced subjectively or objectively. If it's subjective, then Jude is commanding us to continue loving God. If it's objective, then Jude is essentially commanding us to remain in God's good graces. But that may be a false dichotomy. Uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner, who's a New Testament scholar resident here in Louisville, Kentucky's Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, argues that it may well be both subjective and objective. He writes in his commentary on Jude, and I quote, Probably we're faced with a false alternative. Our love for God depends on his love for us. Hence, the two cannot and should not be rigidly separated. It's important to remember that this letter begins in verse 1 and ends in verse 24, both by telling us that we are being kept for Christ that Christ is able to keep us from stumbling and will stand us blameless before his glorious presence. What a marvelous, indicative-driven imperative. Because we're being kept in Christ, we must keep ourselves in the love of God. When we're being kept in Christ, how can we do anything but keep ourselves in the love of God? This is precisely the grace that Jude's audience, both 1st century and 21st century, needed to hear. So Jude shifts in verse 22 and 23, providing his directions for how to deal with his opponents. His imperative verb here, eleate, have mercy. Now, this is interesting, right? Given Jude's harsh tone towards his opponents throughout the epistle, the following participle, diakrinomenus, is also interesting. It's difficult to understand the common but unfortunate translation, those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. The exact same word and the exact same parsing appears back in verse 9 in Jude, where Jude speaks of the archangel and the devil. And there the word is translated much more strongly as disputing right, rather than doubting. Disputing. Now, the strong way that Jude has spoken of his opponents thus far and the presence of the word back in verse 9 should both lead us to utilize a more common translation of that word. 
something like disputing, as it was translated earlier, or perhaps arguing. Still, Jude says to have mercy on those who are indeed disputing. And then he breaks out a couple of ways that this might play out with his opponents. Now, on the one hand, there are some who may ultimately repent and return to the gospel. So Jude gives the imperative that we are to save them, snatching them out of the fire. I don't think that my slides are working here. The beloved are to make every effort to bring their erring brothers back into the fold and to do so mercifully. So how many of you have ever changed your mind after being insulted by someone who disagreed with you? Not always, but generally that approach causes people to dig in more deeply to their bad or wrong ideas. The Apostle Paul tells us in the second chapter of his epistle to the Romans that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And that seems to be the approach commended by Jude here. Be winsome. If someone claims to belong to Christ while espousing bad ideas or bad theology, then treat them as a brother or a sister in Christ. Show them love, honor, respect. Extend the benefit of the doubt. Assume that they love God's word and want to be faithful to it. Pray for them. If they repent and return to the gospel, then they'll be saved from the flames. Yes, Jude most certainly means hell, which goes to show the seriousness of their error. Now, on the other hand, there are those who are not merely in error. Rather, they don't even belong to the flock of Christ. Again, Jude gives the imperative to have mercy, but this time with the added caveat in fear and phobo. There's always the risk when engaging with those who are in error that they may also lead us into error. Now, there's a point where debate must end, and that can be a very fuzzy gray line. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, understood this challenge. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. But also, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Well, which is it? Sometimes you may feel you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. We want to show kindness in the hopes that those in error may come to repentance. However, bad actors will always take advantage when the benefit of the doubt is extended. Consider, for example, the history of the Anglican Communion that I offered last week. After 25 years of extending the benefit of the doubt, many have come to realize that revisionists in the communion have no intention of repenting and have merely taken advantage of the grace and peace extended. One needs discernment from the Holy Spirit to distinguish when to answer and when to walk away. As Jesus said, we need to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. So what does it look like to show mercy in fear? Jude provides further instruction in the next clause. Mesuntes kai ton apo tes sarko espilomenon hitona. Here we have 
misuntes, a present active participle in the nominative case. That should be translated hating. This is an action carried out by the beloved directed at the chitona, which is a masculine singular noun in the accusative case translated as garment. A chitona was like a robe that was worn. So clearly the beloved are called to hate the garment, which is then modified by espilomenon. That's a perfect passive participle in the accusative case, which can only be read as an attributive adjectival stained or defiled. So up to this point, there's only one possible reading of the text. Hating the defiled garment. Okay, but the proposition apo and the noun tesarkos leave room for a few possibilities. So among the major English Bibles, including the NIV, NASB, New Living Translation, King James Version, ESV, Holman Christian Standard Version, and New Revised Standard Version, every single one of them, this clause is translated as something equivalent to hating the garment stained by the flesh. Here we have apo being read as a preposition of agency and sarcos being read as a substantival genitive operating as the direct object of espilomenon. Right, so it's a Witten translation, which leads to a really difficult interpretation. What exactly does it mean to hate the garment that's been stained by the flesh? That would mean that we should be so afraid of these people that we won't even come into contact with their dirty laundry. It's pretty nonsensical. So another option exists for the syntax of this unusual phrase. Rather than reading apo as a preposition of agency, one could read it as a preposition of source. So from here, one could interpret sarcos, flesh, as a substantive genitive of apposition, which would read, hating the defiled garment, which is the flesh. Now in this case, the garment is a metaphor for the flesh, which can be interpreted in a couple of different ways. First, perhaps Jude is saying we should treat this second class of troublemakers like dirty laundry. Now, in first century Galilee, people didn't have closets full of garments like we modern Westerners do. Their wardrobe consisted of an inner tunic, kind of like our underwear, and an outer tunic. They probably didn't have a fresh pair for each day that would go into the laundry at the end of the week and then be worn again. Generally, a person would have a pair for everyday use and another pair for special occasions which were not laundered according to our modern standards. So once a garment was well and truly spoiled, nothing remained to be done but to dispose of it. And that may be what Jude meant. But there's also a second possibility here. Jude was a Jew, and he was writing to Jewish Christians. He, he's been making a case that his opponents are ungodly and unclean. Now he's speaking of a garment of flesh which makes the body unclean. So it's not a huge stretch here to see this as an allusion to foreskin. Any Jewish boy or male convert to Judaism would have been required to undergo circumcision, cutting off the foreskin, which was believed to be unclean, in order to sanctify the rest of the body. In either case... Whether he's talking about clothing soiled and damaged beyond repair or unclean flesh, what this most likely means is that Jude is encouraging his audience to execute church discipline. 
perhaps even censure against those who will not repent. The words church discipline will evoke a myriad of responses in mixed company. There are those who would shudder at the thought of censuring and potentially even excommunicating anyone from the church, regardless of grounds. After all, the gospel is about grace, right? And Jesus is love. For many, discipline just doesn't jive with grace. But Jude seems to be challenging that attitude, encouraging the church to practice church discipline, yet with a great deal of caution and love. Christians are to be merciful on those who are disputing. Jude's not saying that there shouldn't be consequences for abandoning the gospel, quite the contrary. But there seems to be great concern for the ethos of the church in this situation. The church needs to be a safe place for people to ask questions, a safe place for people to struggle with their faith. This doesn't only apply to those who are struggling with doubts, but to those who are actively causing problems because of their doubt. In the context, this kind of love and support, many will be led to salvation and perseverance in the faith. And that's precisely Jude's point. Do this so that you can snatch some from the fire. The church is not charged with the task of discerning the elect from the reprobate, nor is she equipped for such a task. Only the Lord can discern the hearts of men. The church is, however, charged and equipped for the task of making disciples of the nations. Jude concedes that there is a point when some will need to be cut off from communion with the church. It seems that the reason for, ex- for such excommunication is due to the disrepute that they're bringing to the body of Christ and the impact that they're having on the love feast. In this situation, the saints must love the purity of the church and keep her table undefiled. The church best loves those who abandon the gospel by censuring them and not allowing them to eat and drink judgment upon themselves. The goal of censure and excommunication is not ultimately the punishment of wayward sinners, but rather the hope of their repentance and reconciliation. If admonition doesn't suffice to bring the wayward home, then perhaps the act of censure and excommunication is the only thing that may help them see the seriousness of their error. This final step of church discipline, which Jesus commends in Matthew 18, should always be done with grief, with fear and trembling, but ultimately in love and with the hope of restoration. Now, watching people that you know apostatize, literally loving their sin and error more than they love the peace and purity of the church is heartbreaking. It's also very sobering. As a pastor, I've seen both parishioners and fellow clergy walk that path. I've prayed for them, admonished them, pleaded with them, and been shocked to watch them walk away. These have been people that I respected, admired, and loved. Along with the grief that I felt by their departure, I also experienced my own doubts. Not so much questioning the word of God, but questioning myself. If these people could depart from the faith, what's to say that I couldn't do the very same thing? It's a fair question, and honestly, there but by the grace of God go I. 
And that is a frightening prospect. I suspect that Jude anticipated this, which is why he concludes his epistle with this beautiful and hope-filled doxology. Again, he's reminding his audience to keep themselves in the love of God, building one another up in their most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and receiving the mercy of Christ to eternal life. Even in their weakness, God will help them. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.